the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good afternoon and welcome to another Saturday with Woods and Water, South Carolina. My name is Roger Metz and you're listening to 94.5 the Ant- WGTK, The Answer. Got that right? Have to remember to say that every once in a while so everybody knows what station they can tune in to hear me. And uh, I'm sorry, the website, man, I'm so far behind on getting podcasts up there. It's just been a busy year. October 15th is coming. I think on the 16th my life will be mine again for at least a month or so. And I'll try to catch up on a lot of the stuff that I haven't been able to do. Uh, is anybody other than me tired of hearing about MLF fishing? <laughs> I, the, if you haven't been keeping up, the, the professional fishing world has been in an uproar uh, because um, there's another tournament series out there now. Uh, MLF, Major League Fishing, Bass Pro Shops and Sportsman Outdoor Group. And they essentially gutted the uh, Bassmaster Elite series anglers to fill the mlf roles um, all our south carolina guys except for jason williamson are gone now so casey marty and andy montgomery are all fishing this one still waiting on a lot of details all they've done so far is released a um, kind of a framework and now they have a they have their 80 angler field and we're waiting to see if there's going to be anything for uh, you to go see if they ever come to south carolina so but yeah, it's uh, everybody's weary of the professional fishing world, and we'll catch up with that. I, I know I've had some people ask me if we can they can come on and talk about it, so we will get back around to it. But we're going to take a break from fishing. Talking to, today, actually, we're going to talk to Hank Forster and Charles Evans. They have a great program they started down in Georgia three years ago now, called Field to Fork, and uh, it's a way to introduce people to hunting who maybe would like to hunt but have never had the opportunity to hunt didn't grow up like me hunting is just what i've done ever since i was a kid so really interesting program uh, i know we're going to have a good time talking about that and uh, i've got a few things here but let's uh you know fall <laughs> i think the temperature is going to cool off one of these days in fact i'm sure of it at some point it will uh and that's when you'll uh you'll need to hit the road because the leaves will be ch- changing colors and so for this calendar of events brought to you by Visit Anderson Green Pond and Landing and Event Center, we're going to go driving Highway 11. This is a story from upcountry South Carolina that uh, kind of takes us down Highway 11, and the Cher- which is the Cherokee Foothills National Scenic Byway, and a couple of side trips. So one of the best ways to see the upstate is on South Carolina 11. You can take the road from the Georgia-South Carolina border at Lake Hartwell through the rolling hills of the Piedmont all the way to Gaffney where you can go to the Gaffney Outlets, which is how you get your wife to go on these things, and your kids. No, uh, you can do the drive about four hours, but there are a lot of things to do along the side as you drive it. So here are seven side trips for you. Side trip number one, take Highway 76 into the apple country of Oconee County because there's nothing like fresh-from-the-farm apples, 
A unique way to see this area is from the water or from the trees. You can take a whitewater rafting trip down the Chattooga, or you can take the Canopy Tour zip line if that's your thing. Side trip number two, jump on Highway 28 north to Walhalla or Hogwalla. Here you'll find antique shops to explore. Continue north on Highway 28 to explore the Stump House Tunnel in Issaquina Falls. Highway 107 to O'Kenny State Park, where you can treat your partner to a paddleboat ride or an excursion to Hidden Falls Waterfall. Then you can hit Highway 130, head north to Lower White Waterfall to see the highest set of falls in eastern North America. Then head on south to 130 to back to Highway 11. Side trip number three, Lake Joe Cassie. 75 miles of undeveloped shoreline. We were out on Joe Cassie with uh, Joe Cassie Lake Tours a couple weeks ago. Beautiful lake, as everybody knows. Uh, you can uh, fish. You can play in the water. You can rent kayaks and pontoon boats to get a close-up and personal view with a lot of the waterfalls around the lake. Uh, you can rent a cabin at Devil's Fork State Park or the Kiwi Toxway State Natural Area. Uh, outstanding views of the mountains up through there. Side trip number four. Take Highway 276 north to Caesars Head State Park for breathtaking views. From this granite outcropping, you'll see Table Rock, which is within 100 feet of being the tallest point in South Carolina. You know, Sassafras Mountain is the tallest one. And they've got a new observation tower up there that's about to be open to the public, I think. But uh, it's off of Highway 178. One of the most popular trails at Caesar Head leads to the 420-foot Ravencliff Falls, where a suspension bridge offers one of the two publicly accessible overlooks to the falls as they splash deep into the mountain cove below. Side trip number five. Check out some bridge history. Poinsett Bridge, the oldest bridge in South Carolina, is on the Callahan Mountain Road. You'll see signs for it on Highway 11. It is surrounded by a nice wooded area. A little further up Highway 11 is Campbell's Covered Bridge, the only remaining covered bridge in the state. Both are great spots for a picnic, and I can vouch for both of those. After uh, Side trip number six, after leaving Campbell's Bridge, head north on Highway 14 to the charming town of Landrum. And if you listen to WGTK, you hear Landrum often. They do some advertising here. There are some outstanding antique stores lining Main Street. You'll want to park and walk. If you want to eat, you'll find plenty of options, including the Hare and the Hound, uh, a bunch of other places. And I think El Mocha, there's a Mexican restaurant that we always eat there on the way back from fishing the Green River. And finally, you can take Highway 776 south back to Highway 11. Finally, side trip number seven, Highway 11 rolls into Gaffney, where the Gaffney Outlet Marketplace, see, I told you, go shopping, known as the Yellow Mall, where Alfred's Outlet Pricing and what seems like a zillion stores. Downtown is quite quaint with new and old mixed together. Uh, let's see, the Michael Gaffney Cabin is located in the heart of downtown. If you want to see insight in the Revolutionary War, you can head on up 85 to Kings Mountain National Military Park. And uh, the drive up the mountain is gorgeous. You'll be able to retrace the steps of one of the most important battles in our nation's history. So there's your calendar of events. Get on the road. Highway 11 is considered a back road, I think. I think technically it's a back road. It's not an interstate. Let's put it that way. And there's lots of little back roads you can take off of it. So there you go. Your calendar events for this week is now with the changing leaves. Jump on Highway 11. You can find this at uh, Upcountry South Carolina. Uh, let's see. I, I may have gotten through a press release. But anyway, check out Upcountry up South Carolina. Find this drive. And uh, there's your calendar for this week. So. With that being said, I think I'm about done with the first segment. We're going to talk to Hank and Charles about Field to Fork. After we're done, I'm going to give them however much time they want. When we get done with them, we'll come back. We'll finish up. I've got a bunch of little stories here that we can uh, we can uh, finish out the show with. So stay tuned. 
And more Woods and Water, South Carolina, on the other side of the break. Welcome back to Woods and Water, South Carolina. You never know what you're going to hear on this show, which makes it fun both for you and for me. But uh, there's a program out there that's really neat. It is grown out of the movement to bring more hunters into hunting, introduce people to deer hunting primarily. And I'm joined by two guys who have kind of taken this thing and put their heads together, did it for a couple of years, and now it's an expanding program. They got great success with retaining uh, the people who start the process, who who are introduced to hunting, actually go on hunting. They're continuing to hunt. They're branching out into other hunting areas. So the program's moved to seven states this year. It is called the Field to Fort Program, and I'm I'm honored to have Hank Forrester with QDMA and Charles Evans with Georgia DNR on the Woods and Water, South Carolina. Welcome, gentlemen, and thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. Yes, sir, Hank. We've known each other for a few years, and I kind of know you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Sure. Um, Hank Forster, um, Hunting Heritage Programs Manager for the Quality Deer Management Association, headquartered over in Bogart, Georgia, but, of course, got its start down in Walterboro, South Carolina, and I'm actually a College of Charleston graduate, <laughs> so uh, uh, familiar with the state, love the state, and uh, just glad to be here today. But um, we... Uh, we, myself, along with Charles Evans, you know, got together. Um, I'll let him introduce himself, yeah. but uh, we started this Build to Four program a few years ago. Yeah, it's really taken off. Charles, tell us about yourself. I, in fact, let me ask you this. Were you at the uh, National R3 Symposium last summer, or this past summer? I was. Yeah, well, I was there. I certainly was. We probably we must have missed each other for a second, but uh, yeah. I'm Charles Evans. I'm the R3 coordinator in Georgia, which stands for Recruitment, Retention, and Reactivation of Hunters. And I actually work for the Georgia Wildlife Federation, but my position receives additional support from Georgia DNR, QDMA, NWTF, and SCI as well. I gotcha. Yeah, the uh, retention, recruitment, reactivation is something that we're all kind of trying to find our way through. Um, hunter numbers are down. And you guys have, I don't know if you copied it word for word from the Kentucky program or just kind of took the idea and made it Georgia or QDMA, but you, you took this program and I think food with, uh, you know, a lot of people pushing the free range food, the non genetically modified food. I mean, you can't get any more free range than a whitetail deer. That's right. Um, I mean, it's antibiotic, hormone-free. It lives a life free of animal welfare concerns, so there's no captivity issues there, factory farming. And, you know, traditionally we, we talk about this audience that we're targeting. We term them as locavores. And locavores, the traditional definition would be something surrounding people that want to source their food locally, but okay. we take that definition and expand it a little bit and include people that want all natural local food and want to take ownership of where their food comes from, specifically their protein source Okay. for the terms of this program. How did this program get its start? I mean, whose idea was it to, 
to take it actually to farmers markets. So a little background on that. Charles and I were having lunch one day, and yeah, I guess it was a couple years earlier. I'd actually reached out to the Athens Farmers Market. I've I've enjoyed uh, visiting and buying some produce there over the years, and um, I'd gotten permission to do a um, you know breaking down a deer seminar. Uh, they were doing like chef demos at the time, and I thought, oh, that would be really cool and neat to kind of push hunting, but you know, make sure it's food focused. Okay. And uh, I could never really get it worked out. I didn't feel like I was the expert to go break down the deer. I I, uh, I, I break down some of my own deer, but I'm I'm by no means an expert. <laughs> but um, just through a lunch conversation one day, I mentioned that to Charles, and you know, we wanted to work on some kind of program to get hunters a field and um, just came up with the idea to set up at the farmer's market and ask people if they'd like to try samples of venison. That's that's how we lead off. And uh, and we've had a really warm reception from almost everyone who attends the farmer's market, including the management of the market. You know, it's interesting. People love food. And we go up to the Traveler's Rest Farmer's Market. they got a great one up there in Traveler's Rest, just in the upstate of South Carolina. And, you know, I've tried a lot of different foods up there, breads and cheeses, and and uh, they got some some guys that come in with the grass-fed beef and all. So food is a, you know, when you go to farmers market, that's what you're there for. So naturally introducing venison in there, probably had a lot of takers, didn't you? Yeah, we certainly did. Um, it, we weren't really sure what the reception was going to be like initially, but Hank's a great cook, and so. He did some venison backstrap with homemade chimichurri sauce, and then we had some jerky as well out there and some venison sausage. And we kind of just laid it out there with a flyer that advertised the program and then on the back of it talked about why you should hunt deer, the benefits of hunting, the nutritional benefits of venison versus beef. And people really took to it. I mean, everybody that came by pretty much wanted to try venison, and that includes vegetarians and vegans. Um, A lot of the reason that people are vegetarian or vegan comes from animal welfare concerns. Okay. And so when it's wild game, you know, there, there are no concerns there. They lived a, a free life at that point outside of captivity. And, you know, we have all the benefits that we've talked about previously of that meat as well. So it was pretty impressive, everybody that wanted to try it. And then, you know, quite a few of them became interested in actually learning how to hunt themselves. And many of them stated that, you know, they would have never thought about getting into hunting without this program, or they had had interest previously, but they just never really had an avenue to pursue it. You know, it's an intimidating activity. Yeah, I mean, you, you we've all heard from people who who look at the covers of a Outdoor Life with a guy, white doe hunting, and they want to go, how do I get from here, I grew up in a home that didn't hunt, to there? That's a huge step for a lot of people in this program you've got kind of starts out with the food, and then I understand in the program, the end result, of course, is to get somebody out hunting. And how interest, I mean, when you're out there and you're passing out these flowers, flyers about hunting and about Field of Fork, who who are the takers in this whole program? You know, um, I couldn't uh, put them in any sort of box. We've now had participants from 18 to 70 years old, um, you know, people who – you know, are, are leaving a, their vegetarian or vegan lifestyle and, and wanting to eat meat, but, you know, have decided that they want to hunt for their food to, um, you know, I took a gentleman out last year who 
wife didn't eat meat, and he figured he he quote unquote enjoys eating meat, and uh, <laughs> he um, he wanted to take responsibility once. That was kind of his um, that was kind of his lead off. We always ask him, you know, we we want to know their motivations, and he figured if he was going to eat meat, he needed to take responsibility for the death of an animal at least once to know what that's like. Um, fortunately, I can report that he's enjoyed the venison as well, okay. um, and he's ready to go again. So uh, he told me his wife's mad at him because it was supposed to be a one-time deal, but um, but he's he's hungry for more. <laughs> well, take us through the program. Once you, you get the farmer's market, you've got the venison there, you hand out the flyer and all that, take us through getting someone into the program introduction, the the first hunts, and then kind of the after party, which just sounds kind of where I would like to fit in. <laughs> the after party is certainly the most fun part, in my opinion. Absolutely. We, we go down to the farmer's market, and we recruit, just like we described before, and we have everybody fill out a, a pre-selection survey to make sure we're picking the right participants. And it's become so popular uh, recently that we usually end up with a waiting list. Oh, wow. We're able to backfill off that if, if we have any attrition there. But, you know, we bring them into the program, and we try to incorporate field and classroom training. Okay. So we do two training nights during the week. You know, most of these people have full-time jobs, and so we, we start at 6 p.m. over here at the Quality Deer Management Association headquarters, which is pretty much right in town in Athens. Right. And we go through um, – conservation and how hunting has supported conservation historically and present day. You know, this is, this is something that the majority of hunters don't even know about. Right. But we certainly want all of these participants, whether or not they continue to hunt after the program, to understand why hunting is important to wildlife conservation in our country. And from there, we take them outside and we do some crossbow training. So we selected crossbows as the the weapon of choice here for field to fork starting out because we felt that initially firearms might be less palatable to this audience and that that actually ranged true with quite a few of them you know they come up to the booth at the farmer's market and they ask about the program and they're like well i don't think i could do that then we tell them we're using archery equipment they're like, well, I, I think I might be able to do that. You know, it's huh. there's a stigma surrounding firearms in our okay. country, for sure. And if you're uneducated about them, they can be very intimidating. Yeah. And crossbows don't carry that same intimidation factor. So we do crossbow training, and then we work them through um, the, the next night. We work them through more curriculum about deer biology and how it relates to hunting strategy. Take them out, show them, how, you know, where to set up deer stands, what deer sign looks like. And throughout these training nights, we incorporate venison meals with locally sourced sides if possible. So I think the first night this year, we did venison tacos. And then the second night, Hank cooked some venison burgers for everybody. And we incorporate that food-focused theme throughout. From the training, we move into the hunt weekend. Okay. So we pair them up with their, their mentors. And we've been using the Athens branch of QDMA. So those volunteers in that branch have been great to work with. They're all experienced hunters. And they volunteer their time to take these people out hunting. And we hunt all around the Athens area on different properties. And we pair them up with their mentor. They go out. They have a, a hunting experience. And hopefully we have some harvest, which we did. Uh, the first night this year, we had two participants harvest deer. 
brought them back here to the Kitume headquarters, and we did a deer cleaning demonstration and showed them how to break it down. Of course, Hank cooked dinner again, uh, so everybody <laughs> was full. Yeah. But we, we go throughout that. We do that first evening hunt on Saturday, and then Sunday we do another morning hunt. From there, we offer follow-up opportunities. That's what we really want to see. We don't just want it to be a one-and-done hunt weekend. We want these mentors to continue to take these mentees out and teach them about hunting because it takes repeated hits, multiple contacts, to really teach somebody what they need to know about hunting and get them comfortable doing it on their own. And then to cap off the program, we do what we call a culinary social where we bring everybody together uh, we cook a bunch of venison. This year we did, Brian Murphy, the CEO of QDMA, did a sausage-making demonstration and showed people how to break down deer further. And we eat a bunch of venison, and we have everybody go around and tell their stories about their experience in the program, how they felt about it, what they liked, what they didn't, and then we talk about what the next steps are and the follow-up from there. And I say that's the cap off of the program, but the program – really goes all year with the follow-up opportunities and will likely include a range day down the road and make sure they have some opportunities for other species as well. Great. Well, look. And if I may add, yeah. um, you know, our, our seasons are a little different than South Carolina, and so it's still archery season in Georgia. We won't get muzzleloader until, I believe, the 13th of October. So we want to take advantage of these early archery seasons, give them more time, to replicate the process and, um, you know, we can actually get access to properties um, because people don't take advantage of the archery season. Sure. We want to, you know, the big thing about the program is we want it to be replicable for others. So um, we've documented all this and we've tried to keep it sustainable where you don't need, you know, access to a large piece of property to run a field to fork. We've, we've parted our hunters out on the, you know, for mentors to share the stands or, small urban woodlots and, um, you know, properties that we've gotten permission through the tax ID maps. Very cool. Well, look, let's uh, let's take a break, come back, because i got some more questions for you guys. Appreciate you being here. We're talking Field to Fork with Hank and Charles. Hang on through the break. More Woods and Water South Carolina on the other side. Welcome back to Woods and Water, South Carolina. We are talking Field to Fork program uh, that uh, Hank Forrester with QDMA and uh, Charles Evans with the Georgia Wildlife Federation have kind of taken it on their shoulders to take to the public through the farmer's markets, which is a really interesting place to introduce somebody to hunting, but it's worked for them. Uh, We've talked about who's interested, the program itself, the after party, which I think I want to come to the next time y'all have one. Uh, and, you know, you talked about from, from age teenagers to 70s and all, and you talked about something, the experience. What kind of experiences do these people had? I mean, when they when they sit around and talk, and, and, and you and I know from a lifetime of hunting how much those first hunts, just they get ingrained in your, your psyche, your whole person, and that's, that's the reason you keep hunting the rest of your life is because those first memories are so good. Are you seeing that in this program, too? I think, uh, I mean, I I know, um, you know, 
these people are coming to hunting. We survey them, and, you know, they're obviously looking for the food aspect and the meat, but they're looking for a connection with nature. And many of them have been interested in hunting for for years. Uh, you know, they're not they're not any one type of person, but many of them, you know, own guns or, you know, are members of gun clubs. Um, you know, some of them are more, I call them homesteaders, but, you know, um, you know, kind of the anthropologist type okay. and want to see that primal connection with hunting. Um, but they all come from different backgrounds, but it's like that spark, that fire almost starts immediately. I mean, there's just something about sitting in the woods trying to be hidden um, that is a different connection and a different view of the world than uh, than just hiking or walking or or something where you're not really trying to disappear. And they almost report on that immediately. And, you know, we just had our follow-up dinner uh, Tuesday night, and many of the participants talked about that connection with nature, the meditative aspect of deer hunting. Um, you know, it, it catches on immediately, and it's a new experience for them. That um, I can tell you this year we invited past participants to the after party, and we asked them to tell their stories as well. And we actually have them interviewed from a year ago, and they told the story word for word. It must just be that, you know, it's that powerful to them yeah. that it's searing a memory in their brain immediately. And I was shocked by that to to have watched their interview that you saw at the R3 Symposium, yeah. you know, to watch that video and, and know what they said on that, and then to listen to them tell the story a year later, it, it's almost exactly the same. You know, that whole thing about if you if you tell the truth, you never have to worry about what you told the first time. And <laughs> <laughs> and those experiences, I you know, we both can recall those experiences ourselves. So it it's un, it's it's neat to learn that other people later in life can have those same experiences too. Same burning. So Go ahead. you mentioned later in life and you talked about how we likely came into hunting and hunting our whole life. Yes. I just want to make a, an important point here about one of the reasons that we're doing this field to fork program and many of the other initiatives that we're working on, you know, traditionally you came into hunting as a child, your father, or your uncle, or your mom, or whoever taught you how to hunt. And it was just part of your life from a young age. Correct. And that's how the majority of hunters that we have today got into it. But we've seen the rural traditions and values that have kind of formed the, the shape of our current hunting culture shift within society, shift towards a more urban background, towards different values, and the hunting culture hasn't really shifted with that. So we, we have seen a, a shift away from people getting into hunting as kids because their parents don't hunt anymore. Right. But they get older and they become interested in it. They just don't have an avenue to pursue it at that point. So we have a lot of young adults and obviously, you know, quite mature adults that are interested in hunting but have just never had the opportunity to do so. So it's not all about youth anymore. You know, you see a lot of these youth programs out there, but what we know from looking at those is usually you get the youth of the existing base of hunters or somebody that's already from a hunting community. Um, and with these adult programs, you're getting somebody that has authority in their own lives they have discretionary income. They might have kids one day of their own and teach them to hunt through what I would consider to be a more natural process because teaching a kid is very time intensive. It is. And so it, it's pretty neat. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Charles. I was just going to say it, it's pretty, pretty neat to see 
these adults take it on and become just as passionate and as avid of hunters as somebody that's been hunting since they were a child. You mentioned intensiveness of, of taking a child hunting. Yeah, a lot of the, the kids' programs that take one, make ones, they introduce the idea, and you have a mentor there, but, but getting a child the second, third, fourth time into the field because he's got no income of his own to buy, you know, clothes, guns, ammunition. He's got no means of transportation except for parents or somebody comes to get him. And he's got no idea where to go. So a kid is an intensive effort to get him from childhood to a hunter. Whereas I know they did some research in Clemson, you know, college kids, they got time on their hands. They got a little discretionary income. They got a motor transportation. And you're seeing this in the, in your program too, that that's an easier way to get somebody involved in hunting because you can, Obviously, with your program, a couple nights during the week, a first hunt, and you've got people that are doing it on their own now. Yeah, I mean, our organized hunt was uh, on National Hunting and Fishing Day by just happenstance, but September 22nd. We've uh, already had the 15 hunters harvest six deer successfully. Okay. Um, I had had four of them uh, hunting with me on Sunday night, and two more and I are going hunting uh, tonight, so they're... They're coming back. They're replicating the process already, um, you know, interested in buying gear, asking questions. Um, it's immediate results. We talk about, you know, you buying gear and, and buying licenses and all. Why is that important? And this all goes back to hunters as the original conservationists. So the, the single most important thing you can do to contribute to wildlife conservation in the United States is buy a hunting license. Um, and it, you may have gone over some of this on your show previously, so if you have, stop me. No, no, but, it's it, it's worth repeating. Okay, so <laughs> throughout the, the 1800s, we saw something called market hunting, which is not recreational hunting, it's hunting for profit, and it depleted a lot of our native species in the United States, and hunters are the reason that those came back. So people that we would consider founding fathers of conservation, like Theodore Roosevelt and Aldo Leopold, they were sportsmen, and that's why they cared about wildlife. Nobody else really cared at the time. So they saw this issue here, and they saw a need for conservation funding and some regulation. And that's ultimately where the North American model for wildlife conservation came from. And our conservation funding, the majority of it, comes through the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act, commonly called the Pittman-Robertson Act of 1937 which is an 11% excise tax that comes off the top of the sale of all firearms, ammunition, and it was amended to include archery equipment as well. So 11% of those funds, when you go buy a gun, comes off the top, goes up to the federal government, and then it's reallocated to the states based on their land area and how many licensed hunters they have. And those states have to match those funds. And to do that, they need revenue from hunting license sales and, of course, the hunting license sales also determine how much of those funds that they receive. Those funds are then used for public land management, habitat research, uh, just wildlife conservation in general, and hunter education programs. So that's what funds the majority of what we do. And it's a fact that the number of licensed hunters directly impacts the number of sporting opportunities that you're going to have in your state. Yeah, that, that those points right there are worth repeating anytime we can because 
people see white-tailed deer, people see eastern wild turkey, they see wood ducks. None of those species right there would exist without hunters and conservation. And the funding that goes along with license sales, the 11% excise tax, and so forth. So, look, anytime I can hammer that into these people, I'll do it. Yeah, and it's, it's not just those species either that benefit from it. You know, a lot of the management and funding that goes into it benefits a lot of non-game species, a lot of native plant species. You, you know, just look at, if, for example, quail management. That's going to benefit your gopher tortoises, you know. Yep. So it there's a lot of different things in there. And then hunting in general, keeping populations managed, also benefits those species. Well, anytime you can serve for a big animal, it benefits a lot of small animals around it. Exactly. Expansion. Two years there in Georgia, and now you're going into, you've got chapters established or, or organizations in seven other states that are going to take this forward for you. Yeah. Um, we just wrapped up our, our third year in Georgia, but um, this year we've expanded to eight different states. Uh, some run by QDMA branches, uh, others, you know, partnerships with a lot of other organizations. Our model in Georgia was always a partnership model um, okay. between the NWTF, QDMA, the Georgia Wildlife Federation, and the Georgia DNR. And uh, that's really the best way to replicate it. Through some help with the National Shooting Sports Foundation, we got grant money this year uh, and have created, you know, a standardized training that can be used by the replications as well as we've uh, documented, filmed the program in Athens this year so we can better explain and promote uh, what we're doing. But each replication has been a little different. I just got back from New Hampshire where we hosted a field to fork for Ruger and Sig Sauer employees. There were, uh, we had to cap it at 24 but that tells you how many people wanted to learn to hunt that worked for a gun company. Oh, wow. And I think that's the most shocking point I can make is we interact with people. Today, 5% of the U.S. population at best guess, or, you know, at, best, at the biggest number, you know, some say four. Right. But, you know, four or 5% of the U.S. population hunts. Um, that, that's pretty wild. We all know the consequences of, uh, you know, vast, vast minorities. So um, we're lucky that 78% of Americans approve of hunting for meat, and we all interact with people every day that want to learn to hunt but have no idea of how to get started, and, and hunters have become quite an insular community. Yes. Um, and so that's a big thing is in replicating this is kind of trying to diversify hunters um, as we know them. And, uh, and that's really what's going to keep hunting relevant for the future. But um, we've, we've got programs in New Hampshire, New York, Virginia, um, Georgia, Florida, Michigan, still running them in Kentucky. Um, and I know I'm missing a few. I don't have it in front of me. But um, we, we've, we've gone to eight new states. And uh, I expect it to continue to grow. We've been very fortunate to get the publicity um, we've gotten from the program, uh, much thanks to the Council to Advance Hunting and Shooting Sports and us being involved in the R3 symposium. But I continue, I expect this to continue to grow. Um, it, it just is a very sustainable, replicable program. And if anybody would be interested in starting it where they hunt and live, um, they can reach out to me. 
um, hforster at qdma.com. Charles, you've written a couple of great articles about the Field of Fort program. You can find those at qdma.com. Uh, any last thoughts in closing, guys? You know, my biggest thing is I gotta I gotta put in a plug. If you're a hunter, <laughs> please take a new hunter a field this fall. Um, you know, for me, from learning this over the years, creating a hunter is about building a confidence level. If you can't make them confident enough to take care of the game, they're not going to go out and hunt for it. So it's big the education and just making them feel like they can take care of the game that they're hunting. And and secondly. It's just a confidence level to identify as a hunter, and it really takes a mentor. Um, we could easily double the number of hunters in a year if every licensed hunter took someone else. And I can uh, tell you it may be your most rewarding hunt of the season. Well, I can, I can, I can second that. For a few years I taught, uh, about every five years, I teach a little course called South Carolina Outdoors. And it started out as a, you know, I had written down, I was what I want to cover and all that. Well, they were third, fourth, and fifth graders, and really all they wanted to do was get their hands on stuff. So, you know, I'd bring in a cast net. I'd bring in a bunch of bass fishing tackle. I brought in some ammunition and guns at another time and did the Ed Eagle uh, safety with them. One of those kids grew up. He he called me. He said uh, he actually went to church with my brother. He said, I want to learn how to hunt. We said, all right. So we took him to the rifle range, taught him how to be safe with a gun, had him shoot a bunch. Yeah, he did his hunter safety course here in South Carolina. And we took him, I can't believe we did this, like towards the end of the season when you and I both know we never see any deer, right? So we took him, put him up to stand. It was cold. The whole time I was in the stand, I was like, gosh, this kid's probably having a miserable time. His dad was with him, which was really neat. And we had, you know, the spike is, the spike deer is probably the dumbest deer out there. And thank goodness they're there for some people. And he had actually had one come out. He, he got that deer, and it was just for my brother and I, you know, having brought them up, put the dad together in the, in the stand with him, harvested a deer, that is probably will live on in my life as the one best hunt I've ever been on. Sure. The best. Charles, anything you want to say in closing? Yeah, I, I agree with what Hank is saying about, you know, we need our existing base of hunters to realize that a decline in hunting is an issue for all of us to take ownership of that problem. You know, programs like Field to Fork that we're doing, while they certainly have an impact, they are not going to be the end-all, be-all fix to our problem. We need the existing base of hunters to take people new afield with them and recognize that, you know, hunting is something that transcends political and religious boundaries. It's something for anybody that might enjoy the outdoors or, you know, want all-natural food or whatever the reason might be and just make sure you have a welcoming hand stick it out there and offer to take people with you and specifically adults you know because they're going to pick it up and run with it and you might find that it's a lot more fun to hunt with adults than it is with kids you can drink a beer with them afterwards you know y'all can have a good time you might end up finding a hunting partner for life at that point um but it's it's just something that everybody should try out and everybody should get out there and take somebody new and if we do that, we will ultimately secure the future of our wildlife conservation funding. Very good. Well, guys, thanks for being on Woods and Water South Carolina. If uh, anybody has any questions, get a hold of the QDMA, Hank Forrester, Charles Evans, Georgia Wildlife Federation. Thanks for being on Woods and Water South Carolina, guys. Look forward to talking to you this thing. Thank you. Thank you.
Welcome back to Woods and Water, South Carolina. I hope you enjoyed that segment. Talk with, uh, with Hank and Charles. That's uh, that's program, hey, food. We can all get behind programs that involve food. And one of the things they said in there is that hunters, we tend to, to group ourselves together. And that's true. And we tend to gravitate to other hunters. And it's not that we don't want other people to hunt. It's just that we don't want to get out of our comfort zone and ask somebody who doesn't hunt to go with us. And, you know, hey, I'm guilty. <laughs> I would just go by myself as invite somebody I don't know much about or, or don't they have no level of hunting experience, and I'm responsible for all of it. It's a daunting task. But I would encourage you to, this season, get out of your comfort zone. Take somebody else and take them early in the season. Don't wait until December. You know, we all know where the deer are in December. They're huddled down hoping for January the 1st so they can survive the next year. So take them early when it's fun, when there's squirrels and acorns and leaves changing and and fun scenery and birds to watch. And sometimes I wonder why we start people off deer hunting. I think a much easier way to start somebody off hunting is to go squirrel hunting. There's plenty of squirrels. It's active. You get to walk. You get to see a lot. You can talk. Deer hunting is such a... A quiet sport. Can't talk. Shh, they might hear you. Don't move. There's so much involved with scent elimination and wind direction and time of day. It's, deer hunting is a complicated thing. I will say I have I had a chance to hunt twice with my lemon shield scent. Whatever. I washed my clothes in it. I treated my clothes in it. I took a bath in it, and I put the core body. And I've only seen one deer. Sorry. It's hot. When I've been going, uh, the acorns are not dropping. So where my stand, this new stand I put up this year, is, they're just not moving through there yet. But I, I think it's going to work. I mean, uh, I cut grass and did a lot of work at the farm, and I didn't really stink like I normally do. So maybe it'll work. One by one byproduct here, and, it, and I talked to Philip about this this week, is that I have not had problems with mosquitoes. Now that could be a process of it's hot. It's dry. There's not many mosquitoes where I'm hunting or, or whatever else. But in two hunts, I would have expected to have to turn my thermocell on, which I'm glad I didn't because I forgot it both times, uh, or or be swatting mosquitoes. But I, And I, I talked to Philip. I said, all right. I said, I don't know if this is something you've noticed. And I told him what I'd come up with. He says, well, he said, you know, you're not the first one, and I've experienced that. He said, I, we can't say that it helps prevent mosquitoes from attacking you. So, but it's just an interesting little note. I'm going to go down to the low country with a friend, buddy of mine, Captain John Fuss, and we're going to go pig hunt come November. And he slows down, I slows down. We're going to get in, and he said that'll be the real test because pigs' sense of smell is incredible, yeah, probably a little more than deer. And, of course, in the low country, we've got lots of, you know, the South Carolina, low country Air Force, the mosquitoes. You get out of the truck, and they're like, Oof. So it'll be interesting to see how Lemon Shield does down there. But uh, I've been kind of pleased with it here. The first few tries. Never like to have to report on this, but uh, they did find the body of missing hiker Susan Clements. Uh, they were she and her daughter were hiking in the Great Smoky Mountains up around Clingman's Dome, and she went missing. Had been missing for about a week, and uh, they finally found her about three quarters of a mile south of the Appalachian Trail, two miles west of Clingman's Dome, where her daughter had gone to wait for her. And when she didn't show up, that's when they instigated the search. 
Evidently, this lady loved the outdoors, loved to hike. She was with her, I think, her youngest daughter at the time. She'd hike with all her kids. And I, and, I, and like I said, I don't know why she was where she was. But, you know, we talk about hiking safety. One of the tenets or one of the main points is to stay on the trail. And there's a reason for that. Uh, you know, you can still twist an ankle on a trail. You can still break a leg on a trail. You can run into a bear on a trail. But you're going to have more of a chance of doing something like that when you're off the trail so i encourage you when you're up hiking mountains wherever you're going to go stay on the trails it's just easier that way and i think to some extent wildlife gets accustomed to people in certain areas and as long as you're in that area they're more likely to hang out let you take pictures stuff like that when you start getting off in the their territory they know something's wrong and they're going to leave so anyway for whatever that's worth and there's another story here. Actually, I got one from out west where a, uh, a, a guide was killed by a, brown, uh, a bear out in uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And then there was a bear euthanized up at uh, up above Cades Cove a few weeks back. The story is from September the 12th. There was a Tennessee man went missing north of Cades Cove, and uh, they found his body, and they found a rather aggressive bear a male who remained in the area as the rangers recovered, uh, worked to recover the man's body. So uh, as with a lot of animals that um, have a lot of human interaction, they had to euthanize the bear. So just be careful. The, the outdoors, look, it it's, it's, can be a dangerous place. So you need to take responsibility for that and, and, and be safe when you're out there. Give bears a wide berth. Don't know any of the details behind this one, but uh, – you know, when you're out there, you're in their territory. So just be careful. Just be very careful, and and, and hopefully none of this will happen. So uh, that's the story. We'll um, got a lot of things still to cover. Gosh, never can get to what I really want to get to. Well, I take that back. I really wanted to get to Charles and Hank, and we did that, and I appreciate them being on the show. But I got a lot of things here that will just have to wait till next time, including some stuff about oyster recycling. Yes, October ends with an R. That means the oysters are here. So, make time to get out there. Take the back roads when you can. Don't forget the camera. And from Gene Hill, good fires make good friends. See you back here next week with more Woods and Water, South Carolina. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.